Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show again today. Uh, This is another of those myth-busting episodes for you if you like and this time we'll take a look at the widely held investment principle that states we make our money when we buy. Whilst it might sound rather obvious and a clear statement of the truth, is there more to it than that? Let's dive right in now and find out. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. It's understandable, isn't it? If a property is worth, say, £100,000, to just pick an arbitrary number, and we can bag it for £90,000, then we've just locked in £10,000 of profit straight away, haven't we? And I think this is where that kind of principle comes from, if you like. Uh, by, by buying something worth 100 for 90, we actually bagged 10,000 pounds in profit. Yes, that's, uh, that's true, but as we, as we shall see, there are a number of issues, considerations, and indeed influencing factors that might mean that 10K in profit might not be all it's cracked up to be. It might not be the only or indeed the best way for us to make money in property either. So let's consider some of the arguments now then. First of all, um, how we make money in property. Well, we like to say, or I like to say, there are typically three ways to profit through a property's value that we should consider. Of course, we've got the purchase price. That's definitely one of them, and we just talked about that a little bit. Any return added on uh, on added value works uh, to be undertaken is also another way, along with uh, what we might make on the selling price or indeed revaluation come the end of our project. So we've got those three different ways, purchase, adding value along the way, and then selling it or revaluing it at the back end. And buying well usually means getting a discount, of course. And the typical or long-term discount from asking prices is around 4 to 5% on average. And it varies depending on location and what stage we are in the property cycle, but this is the average we should expect over the long haul. So the first thing to consider is, If we're getting an offer accepted at, say, 5% below the asking price, are we even getting a discount at all? Well, the answer would be no, on the basis that this is the average discount that all buyers are receiving from asking price anyway. So we've not created any real value here at all. Granted, we don't want to be paying above what a property is worth. So at least we should be, um, you know, we'd have not lost money rather. Um, by securing such a a discount like 5%, which is a pretty decent start. However, we investors usually look for bigger investment discounts, don't we? And we can realistically realistically rather expect to achieve, say, 5 to 10% of the asking price of a property just to beat the market. We usually achieve this by being more professional in our negotiation, showing a serious buyer status with our finances in place, no chain that can fall through, and uh, and adopting an an always can-do 
uh, or always will do what we say we'll do approach at, at every single stage as well to demonstrate our, our capabilities, which hopefully puts us ahead of the pack. We may also be savvy at spotting issues that might give rise to a discount. Things like uh, the property condition looking worse than it really is, uh, it being stuck on the market for a longer period of time than average, or a situation in the seller's circumstances that we learn about that might suggest a deal could be done. Of course, it could also be an absolute lemon. <laughs> we have loads of hidden issues that later catches us out. So a discount on a dog of a property, uh, is that a kind of mixed metaphor? Not sure. Um, a, a discount on a, a dog of a property could also end up costing us in some way or other and so become a bit of a false economy as well. Finally, in certain hot markets, is getting any kind of discount even possible? Possibly not, unless we end up picking one of those dog properties I've just uh, alluded to. Next, there is the whole subsector of the property investment community fixated with buying below market value, or BMV for short. BMV usually means a distressed property and or a motivated, or in some unfortunate cases, a distressed seller as well, which can lead to a discounted selling price. In the case of a distressed property, how much of the BMV discount is genuine equity realized and how much in fact is related to a provision for the cost of the necessary remedial works that we're going to have to undertake? I see lots of so-called BMV deals that show an apparent discount against properties in very good condition, but which requires lots of work doing them to compare favorably and get them into that same condition. Uh, once the improvement works are accounted for, or rather the cost of those improvement works are accounted for, this often takes a big bite out of that juicy BMV discount, making it not quite as compelling as we first thought. In addition to the costs involved in putting the property right, we might also have to pay some fees to an introducer, and it will also have to take some time uh, to, get to, to get the works completed as well. And I'll come back to the concept of the time value of money a little later. Suffice to say that often BMV does not mean below the price of an equivalent condition property. So watch out for that little sales trick, won't you? In the case of a motivated seller or even a distressed seller, and there is a, there is a distinction, um, I guess, a motivated seller is somebody who's keen to move on and is prepared to maybe take something of a discount in order to do so. Maybe they're emigrating, maybe they're, they're going through divorce or something like that. They're relocating and need to move quickly. So that would be an example of a motivated seller. A distressed seller is, is kind of someone who might be in extreme financial difficulty, maybe facing repossession imminently. And, um, you know, I think we have to be careful that we're ethical when we're working with those sort of people, that we actually do the right thing um, and not overly, you know, overly, that's the wrong word. We don't uh, abuse that position that we might find ourselves in in that situation. So there is a distinction between a motivated seller and a distressed seller, and we just need to tread that line carefully. But again, time pressures create an opportunity for the discount is the key point. But rarely through, um, you know, rarely though would this lead to uh, super large discounts being realized as competition from other investors would naturally prop up the price to some extent. 
Sure, if somebody absolutely needed to sell within a couple of days, then one or two genuine cash buyers, the one or two genuine cash buyers that could complete that fast without undertaking detailed searches and indeed surveys might just then bag a bargain. All I'm saying is that there aren't that many situations exactly like this, that's all. Plus, do you have a pot of cash sat waiting around somewhere uh, tucked under the mattress or something that you can um, you can just pull out in case that deal pops up? And, and do you indeed have the stomach to forego a detailed survey and searches? I suspect not. Uh, not in the most part anyway. I'm sure there might be someone going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, mostly people are not. But even if you did, what's the opportunity cost of having that cash sat around waiting for that bargain of the year to emerge? come back to that later. Therefore, what we often find with so-called BMV deals is a combination of distressed property discount combined with a motivated seller discount. So it's the two elements. And I'd usually expect the level of discount to be approximately evenly split between the two, if not slightly more weighted towards the distressed property discount in truth. In other words, you might actually end up spending some of that discount to put the property back into a decent condition. That magic 20% BMV deal that you might be offered could in fact only realistically be a maximum of say 10% below the equivalent market value in genuine equity terms, of which you might have been able to secure at least half of anyway, just by being smart and searching for property um, wisely and then negotiating well. You could uh, find some of these more realistically priced properties knocking around quite easily if you know where to look. For example, I found a property a while back via estate agents. It was listed on Rightmove and it had an apparent 15% discount against uh, equivalent local comparables. And two previous, or I, I, I negotiated it to 15%. It wasn't advertised that price. I negotiated it down, just to clarify. And um, I'd learned that two previous sales had fallen through. So I felt this led to the seller being somewhat motivated. The property was empty. Uh, there were some works that had uh, been undertaken, but was left unfinished. So it looked a little bit, you know, unsightly, if you like, for, I mean, I guess uh, it would be a typical first-time buyer type of property. And, you know, there were like, uh, there was tiles missing, there were bits of wallpaper missing, but there wasn't a lot. <laughs> In other words, uh, there was just some tidying up that needed to be done. And, um, you know, I, I was able to basically press and get a, a discount on that basis. And I guess uh, the other thing that came to light is there was a slightly adverse position on the street. Uh, there, was, uh, there wasn't sort of uh, off-road parking available for that particular property. So I was able to leverage that as well. And, uh, and uh, as I mentioned, get this 15% discount and from a rental pro- point of view, a rental property point of view. Um, that, was, that was pretty decent. It didn't really bother me that there was uh, only off-road parking rather than uh, off so only on-road parking instead of off-road parking. I'm laboring this point, aren't I? But anyway, I would estimate that in this case, around eight to 10% of that 15% discount was due to the property and the rest was the seller's position. So that kind of illustrates the point I was trying to make really. But apart from um, those sort of discounts, we can add value or force the appreciation. So, you know, as I mentioned, apart from the discount when we buy, we can also profit on a property value in two other significant ways. Uh, when we add genuine value and when we come to sell or have the property revalued. Now, I've spoken at length on plenty of occasions about adding value to property. We can add value to a property by undertaking improvement works or conversion works, for example, which I'll be discussing 
just make a mental note of this, I'll be discussing in the August issue of the uh, Your Property Network magazine. So uh, have a look out for that. And, uh, and you'll see me talk about that in a little bit more detail. Or indeed, subscribe via our website because you can get my articles for free by doing so that way. But I recommend you get the magazine because it's got a broad uh, readership anyway. Equally, we can improve a property's value through more technical or legal changes, such as extending a lease, title splitting, or several units. Um, you know, sorry, title splitting into several units. Can't read my own writing. Uh, getting planning permission and so on. Now, I like to use the term that I refer to as return on works. And uh, this means uh, return on works or ROW when assessing whether I can force appreciation and genuinely add value to a property. In short, it looks at the ops upside, equity or profit I might be able to achieve and compares this to the total cost of undertaking those works involved. Naturally, I'm looking for a positive result where my profit exceeds my costs by a minimum set margin. So it might surprise you to know that I have bought properties for pretty much their full asking price or their equivalent market value and still made a profit by applying some kind of improvement to them to make my profit. So adding value to a property is another potential way to make money through property without necessarily relying on getting a big discount when we buy. Dress to impress when it comes to selling a property is my next point. So next, when we come to resell uh, or get a property revalued in the case of keeping it and refinancing it, if we can achieve a higher sales value than an equivalent local comparison, then we can profit there too. Some people are specialists in achieving this. For example, creating a designer look, a feeling or an experience can sometimes lead to people achieving sales values that breaks the street ceiling price for the property. You just have to look at how developers showcase show homes to understand that by dressing a property well, it can achieve a better sales price on occasions. Or look at how many agents undertake viewing days or undertake sealed bidding processes these days. That's, uh, that's to create a, a buzz or a bit of a frenzy and some natural psychological competitive spirits among would-be buyers. And it works. Clever layout and design, dressing a property in a way that tells a story to your target buyer, or introducing some clever competitive tactics can all lead to higher sales values than would normally be expected, and so can increase your profits as well. Now you might have been saying to yourself, what about the income you generate from a property? I'm wondering why I'd not mentioned it already. Well, firstly, you'd be right to think of it, and secondly, I wanted to keep the first point related to a property's value to help simplify the discussion so far. That said, rental income, and in particular, our net rental income after all costs adds to the mix. So which of these investments I'm about to illustrate using cash to buy is the best one? So first one is a flat valued at 100,000, bought for 90,000 with a net rental income after costs of 394 pounds. Yeah, I kind of worked it out, you know, kind of accurately. So that's why it's a, an uneven number, but it's worth worth 100, pay 90, and it's got net uh, after net rental income after costs of 394 pounds um, a month. That is, or alternatively, a flat valued at 100,000 pounds. So same valuation, bought for 95,000 pounds. So not bought as well, but with a net rental income after costs of 475 pounds a month. It's a tough choice, isn't it? Because I made it deliberately hard. So it's not, you know, you don't get the same net rental income and you only have to pick the one with the biggest discount. There's a bit of a trade-off going on here and that's the point. 
In theory, the first flat suggests that it's been negotiated better and so generated an extra 5k in, in equity or profit to us. However, the net yield on this first flat is 5.25%, whereas the second flat has a net yield of 6% based off a slightly higher purchase price. In cash terms, the second flat generates an extra £972 per year in rental income uh, compared to the first one. If this was a real example, we would be looking around just over five years before the second flat produced the same additional profit that the first flat uh, produced up front. So we might still feel that the first flat is a better bet, even though that the rental yield is slightly lower because it's going to take us what, five years in this, or five years or more uh, to actually you know, equalize, if you like, that kind of level of discount. But if the difference gets a bit bigger or if our main goal is, is income, say, perhaps this might uh, alter our views a little bit. I'm going to add a little bit of spice into the mix on this illustration in a, in a minute or two, though. So uh, hold that thought, won't you? And yes, I know we all want the higher rental value property at the lower property price, but that isn't always possible. And if it is, it often comes with strings attached, like undertaking more in terms of refurbishment works. That's why I, I made the choice imbalanced, and that's possibly more realistic on the streets, so to speak. The conclusion, however, is that we not only have to consider the returns in terms of property value, but in income as well. In fact, more so with a rental property, where we might not be able to access this locked-in equity for many years or even decades to come. And this is a concept known as the total returns from our property investing, which takes us beyond pure price alone. Next, we need to look at uh, the capital growth, investment delay or delaying our investment and the time value of money. And this is an interesting one that some people can overlook. So let's break it down a little. House prices do tend to trend upwards over the long term. Sure, there are periods when they flatline or even go down. But over extended periods of time, the trend or the regression line, if you prefer, is usually upwards. So it stands to reason then that the longer we hold a property, the more likely we are to see some capital growth. It should also follow that the longer we, we delay buying a property, that we'll end up foregoing some of this capital growth. I grant you that if we uh, time our entry into the market incorrectly, say at the top of the market, that this argument can be somewhat watered down. However, when you consider that we can achieve rental in income whilst we own the property, this also needs to be factored in. It can offset some of the potential uh, paper losses or real losses we might realize by getting into the market at the wrong sort of time. As a bit of a sidebar, there's a concept known as um, pound cost averaging as well, which uh, deliberately uh, spreads our uh, timing of uh, investment decisions over, over time so that we, we're averaging out those uh, peaks and troughs of the market. But I do digress, which is sometimes my thing. However, history has shown us that uh, we've achieved around about 7% house price growth per year over the last 50 years or so on average. And if you don't believe me, just look at the nationwide house price index to prove that point. Okay, it hasn't always you know, been 7% a year. More recently, it's been slightly less, in fact. Uh, but over the, over the 55 years that, or so that the index has been running, the nationwide house price index, it's averaged 7% a year, believe it or not. Equally, in the example above, we saw that our net rental income from our two flats, uh, or investment flats, was around the 5 to 6% mark. And, uh, and that assumes no mortgage is used. So um, if it would also lead to a higher net yield, uh, most likely as well. 
But sticking with our um, uh, sticking with our seven uh, percent average capital growth and say five percent average net yield, that's obviously a combined twelve percent per year return on our investment when we look at it collectively. Now consider the opportunity cost of us waiting a year to find this gem or perfect property that we, we might be looking for. The one with the high rental yield and the big discount. It would have actually cost us 12% in lost capital growth and net rental income by sitting out the market this long to find that perfect property. Not only that, but if we wait long enough to locate that £90,000 property that I illustrated earlier, by the end of a year, it could now cost us over £96,000 instead if we had to wait that long before we bought it. And that's just due to the same average house price growth or inflation that we've just been talking about. Yes, I know it's not that simple, but you get the idea. And this is a good way of illustrating the time value of money. Put our 95,000 to work now and realize a combined growth of around about 11,400 pounds a year, or sit and wait for that 90,000 pound apparent gem or perfect property with nothing to show for it in the meantime. Or worse, it turns out that it's then gonna cost us 96,000 pounds instead. I was going to show the impact of this good enough property versus waiting for the so-called perfect property um, over an extended period of time, but it, it might just make your head hurt in an audio podcast. So you'll just have to trust me on this. The gap gets wider the longer you wait and, uh, and, and see the effects of compound growth. So if we're looking at over 10 years, it just gets worse. So trust me on that. But I hope these numbers didn't fry your brain too much whilst driving, dog walking, gym trading, uh, lying in bed, or whatever else you might have been doing at the same time as listening to this today. The long and short takeaway, though, is, is this. Delaying our investment costs us money due to the time value of money and the opportunity cost that we could be realizing as a result. Next up, um, we're going to look at cost finance charges or sorry, finance and charges management in general. And if you remember a few weeks back, we had Amit Ranani as a guest on the podcast. And he was talking to me off air about how asset managers and wealth advisors are now focusing less on new business and more so on portfolio management. In particular, he looks at the costs involved in managing an investment portfolio and how this can erode the net returns we achieve. The same principle applies equally to our property investments. So imagine the difference in our net investment returns that could be made if we're able to keep our costs down. Yes, we do need to look at quality, not cutting corners and so creating false economies. But if we can genuinely secure equivalent services, but for less money, we'll naturally improve our returns significantly in some cases. Now, I usually assume that a standard buy-to-let has annual running costs in the region of 25% of the annual rent per year, excluding a mortgage and taxation. However, if we can drive this down to say 20% a year, then that additional 5% drops straight into our back pocket as additional profit. And here's some examples to illustrate how this can be, how this can be done. In reality, when, when undertaking works, for example, I've seen fixed price quotes for a recent works project range from £65,000 to £85,000. And as a member of LMPG, I've, uh, I've seen the cost of kitchens and bathrooms achieve something like 70% or more discount on my refurb projects. 
I see some letting agents talking about the letting space, which accounts for quite a lot of that 25% running costs I alluded to earlier, especially online ones who charge as little as 7% letting fees. Although I personally still like to pay a premium than this uh, to ensure some quality and a local presence because I, I, I believe that uh, delivers a better result. But that's, uh, that's just my personal take on it. And with financing, I've seen some lender fees be totally removed on a remortgage by renewing directly with the same lender. And you, there's normally some kind of loyalty scheme. You normally only get offered it in the last month before renewal or something close to that. So uh, you have to have, uh, you have to trust that's going to happen. But I've done that a couple of times now and avoided quite a lot of remortgage fees, both from the lender and the broker. And equally, by renewing onto longer term fixed rates, I've been able to see my total cost of finance reduced due to avoiding repeating broker and lender fees every couple of years and pushing it out by, say, five years instead. And perhaps this is, this is to some extent, an extension of make money when you buy principal rather than a completely new point. But I, I just mention it to sow the seed that we can improve our returns by adopting a professional or business-like approach to our total cost of ownership with our properties. The next point I want to talk about is... Uh, it's kind of magic in a way, and you'll, you'll understand that reference in a second, is leverage. And leverage is another topic that I have actually covered it off in length, so I'm just going to touch on it here. You might remember in my first two, plat, uh, two, plats, two flats example from earlier, where there was perhaps a, a leaning towards the first property or the lower price flat. Well, let's just revisit those examples now, uh, although this time it, applying a mortgage to the, to the situation. And if we were to take out, for example, a 75% loan-to-value mortgage in each case, we can see, you can see the following returns on investment, or ROI, that transpires. Flat 1 would have cost us £90,000, if you remember, and so we're going to need £22,500 as a deposit, and the revised net rental income after allowing for the mortgage of just about £200 a month. And that's a simple return on investment on the deposit sum of 10.7% which compares to our return on investment using cash of 5.25%. So it's more than doubled, actually, the overall returns just by introducing the mortgage into the equation. And I'd rather like that. Flat 2, on the other hand, would, would, would have cost us £95,000, if you remember. And so that means a £23,750 uh, £23, deposit and a revised net rental income after the mortgage of around £267 a month. And that's a, that's a simple return on investment on the deposit of 13.5%, which compares to our return on investment using cash of 6%. So again, more than doubling the returns. But when we compare the two ex, uh, examples, now we can perhaps see the benefit of flat two more clearly. We only actually need to put in an extra £1,250 in our own cash to, to buy it. So it's not £5,000 difference, it's now 1250 whilst we achieve something like a 26% improvement in our return on investment by doing so. So that's the difference between 10.7% and 13.5%. And as Paul Daniels, the magician, used to say, now that's magic. <laughs> and indeed, leverage is a little bit like a magic trick in property too. Need I say more about the benefits of leverage here then? No, good. So Tax breaks is the next topic I want to talk about, but I'm reluctant to go too deeply into the subject of taxation, quite simply because everybody's situation is different and unique to them. However, there are some clear benefits or, uh, or potential tax breaks that may work well in certain situations, 
that might also be worth looking at more closely. And it could be argued that their potential benefit and impact onto the bottom line, or our profitability, could perhaps even surpass that of a modest purchase price discount alone. And here's some examples. Lettings and uh, lettings relief and PPR relief, or uh, primary residence relief, when converting what was our home to a rental property. And that could be worth something like £40,000 just for lettings relief, plus 18 months of tax-free capital gain or capital growth um, when the property is rented out after moving out. Next, we can look at tax-free rental income on lodger rental income. So this is where we rent out space in our own home, take in a lodger. That could be worth £7,500 a year tax-free. Capital gains tax, annual exemptions when we sell a rental property, which could save, save us £11,000 per person. So if there's more than one owner, that could be, if there's two owners, that'd be £22,000 in capital gains. Not to mention the fact that capital gains is taxed at a lower rate to income tax in the first place. So when people say never sell a property, mm, <laughs> when you start to look at these sort of things, maybe it's worth looking at your portfolio and cashing in your chips on some cases, in some cases. And of course, we've got mortgage interest relief on holiday lets and similar types of property, which allows 100% relief on the mortgage interest at your highest tax rate, which compares favorably to what would be an after-profit calculation uh, relief capped at the basic rate uh, for buy-to-let uh, property uh, investors. Capital allowances on, on commercial properties or what can be classified as commercial properties not going to go too much into the details on this point but where it applies it can offset a year or two even in some cases three years rental profits typically stamp duty savings for example by buying a company's shares that owns a property rather than the property itself and or buying six or more properties in a single transaction they both realize stamp duty changes and in the former case, it reduces stamp duty from the prevailing stamp duty rate plus the 3% premium to just 0.5% when buying shares instead. How about paying corporation tax on flip profits instead of income tax, which could save you 20% or more in the tax take for higher or highest rate taxpayers, which if it's reinvested could also compound up quite nicely as well. It's particularly effective if you don't need to live off the income in the meantime. What about tax-free cash input into a pension to re reduce our effective tax rate by 20%, 40% or even more? And in some cases, if we structure our affairs correctly, we could even utilise this tax-free cash to help fund our investment activities more generally. Finally, what about reduced or even avoided inheritance tax by some careful tax planning? It could be worth a small fortune in reality. So as I mentioned, I didn't want to go too deeply into these points, but there are some genuine tax savings to be had that can dramatically improve our property investment returns. Just ping me a note if you want a few pointers on who you could speak to about some of these points, because I'm not a tax advisor, so please don't take anything of what I'm saying as tax advice. Um, I can point in the right direction if you'd like to know more. Next is really alternative income streams from property. And again, I don't want to go too far here. Suffice to say that with a little bit of lateral thinking, we could realize additional profits from properties we encounter just by changing the nature of the transaction. And here's a few examples. How about increasing rental income from a change of use, such as from a single let to an HMO or holiday rental?
um, we could look to earn fees related uh, for work related to a property that we don't own, but we can control or influence. And this could cover things like sourcing fees, if we pass it on to another investor, project management fees or letting management fees for acting as some kind of you know, conduit or facilitate along the way, or some sort of assisted sale profit share, or even a planning gain joint venture, and so on and so forth. Equally, looking at securing additional rental income by breaking down the rent into different sections or components or even offering added value services instead. And here's some examples that I've actually used in many cases. Uh, a pet premium, so charging a premium rental for having a pet. Uh, renting out a garage space separately to the main property. Um, offering additional cleaning or gardening services as a value add. Providing high-speed broadband and satellite TV and a premium HMO to command a premium on the rental. Or furnish, uh, providing furnished rental property to command a premium on the rent as well. But, you know, in all honesty, I'd better stop right there and draw a line under this discussion. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking forever. Uh, the principle was that we make our money when we buy, if you like. And that's the myth or the truth truism that I was trying to uh, to uphold, if you like. But I believe that whilst there is, uh, is, is partly truth, it's definitely not the whole truth. In actual fact, we can and indeed do make more money from property in a variety of different ways and through alternative methods as well. And this could be by undertaking improvement works or dressing the property to sell, by looking at our total returns, including capital and rental returns, by starting to invest sooner rather than later, to capitalize on the time value of money and achieve compound growth by adopting a, a cost management approach to all of our expenditure by maximizing our returns through leverage it's magic remember by taking all the available tax breaks that are open to us and we might mix and match here a little bit as well by looking at property as a vehicle to generate income in many different ways rather than just as an asset to own and derive rent from so for me at least, making money when you buy is a myth. We don't only make money when we buy, and in some cases, we don't make any money when we buy at all either. We can make money from property in plenty of different ways, and so we must learn to be agile, flexible, and creative if we're to both spot and capitalize on all of the possibilities that are open to us as a result. And that's our role really as professional property investors. And as you can probably tell, I aim to stimulate both thought and action with some of these topics. So please do drop me a line if you want to have a chat. You can email me at uh, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. The show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net as well. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.